Thanks, Tim. That, that song almost fits. Oh, it does. It fits the sermon perfectly. How did you know? It's almost like you knew what I was going to preach on or something. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 20, where we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 40. Sermon title, You Will Be Resurrected. Or in the words of the song we just heard, You Will Fly to Jesus. In the Banner of Truth article by Matthew Vogan, the theology of Joseph Ratzinger, the current Pope, Benedict XVI, he discusses the views of the Pope has, the current Pope has, on the resurrection. Though he is supposed to be the head of the church, he denies the resurrection. Discussing the resurrection and the statement of the resurrection in the Apostles' Creed, the Pope has asserted in his book, An Introduction to Christianity, quote, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And you would think, well, well, that's good. I mean, that's what I believe. But his definition of resurrection shows that he denies it. He says that, quote, the resurrection expresses the idea that the immortality of man can exist and be thought of only in fellowship of men. Now, if you're thinking, what does that mean? That, that is exactly, I want you to know, I, I have lots of theological education. That's difficult for me too. In his book, Eschatology, Ratzinger says, The proper Christian thing, therefore, is to speak not of the soul's immortality, but of the resurrection of the complete human being and of that alone. So it's not a bodily resurrection. It's a resurrection of the complete human being. In fact, he says that the term soul isn't even being used in Catholic liturgy anymore. It's not even, doesn't even appear in Catholic Bible translations anymore. Ratzinger redefines the soul as our ability to have a relatedness with the truth and with things eternal. Having a soul, therefore, means, quote, being God's partner in dialogue in this life. Ratzinger writes, quote, It now becomes clear that the real heart of faith in the resurrection does not consist at all in the idea of the resurrection of bodies to which we have reduced it in our thinking. Such is the case, even though this is the pictorial image used throughout the Bible. But he asserts, quote, One thing, at any rate, may be fairly clear both John 6:63 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:50 state that with all possible emphasis that the resurrection of the flesh the resurrection of the body is not the resurrection of our physical body end quote he says that men live on and are eternal not because they have a soul that continues to exist after death and be un- that to be united with a physical body later at the resurrection but the essential part of man quote goes on existing because it lives in God's memory 
end quote. So as a Christian, you are eternal because God never forgets you. But after death, there is no heaven. There is no hell. There is no resurrection. There is no life after death. There is no judgment to face. And this is the current Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. God says in 1 Corinthians 15... 15 through 19, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Thus the current head of the Roman Catholic Church teaches heresy. He denies one of the cardinal doctrines of the church that even the Roman Catholic Church has always taught. And Ratzinger's views make him in perfect agreement with the Sadducees of Jesus' time, who we will encounter in our text this morning. It's Passion Week, Jesus' last week before he dies, Tuesday. The Passover feast is going on in Jerusalem that week, and so there are pilgrims from all over the world who are there to worship in the temple. Jesus is on the Temple Mount. He's been teaching, preaching the gospel He's driven out the money changers and sacrifice sellers. The Pharisees and Herodians, having been offended, just struck out trying to ask him a difficult question about paying taxes. And now it's the Sadducees' turn. And so look at verse 27 of Luke 20 and follow along as I read down through verse 40. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took the wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. In the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have answered well. But they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. From this text, I just want to pour 
point out four aspects of the resurrection so we can all understand a little bit better about what happens when we die and what the future holds for all believers who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And the first is denying the word of God leads to theological confusion. Look at verse 27. We read now, there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. If you know the children's song, that's why they're sad, you see. (laughs) If you don't know that song, just go to the children's ministry and you can learn it. The Pharisees are not fair, you see. (laughs) So the Sadducees were the, the kind of the theological liberals. Uh, they believed that oral tradition was not authoritative and not binding on Jews, that any sort of man-made religion was, uh, was not to be accepted. You could take it or leave it. It wasn't authoritative at all. This put them at odds with the Pharisees who believed both the Old Testament scriptures and oral tradition. And so they were right in that Uh, The law of Moses was more authoritative than tradition, but then they erred by saying only the law of Moses and they rejected all the rest of the Old Testament as authoritative. So they only went by the law of Moses, supposedly. Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews writes, quote, What I would now explain is this, that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the law of Moses. And for that reason, it is that the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to esteem those observances to be obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are delivered from the tradition of our forefathers. So Josephus tells us very clearly the Pharisees had added all these rules and that the Sadducees only believed in the written word. And we know that they only believed in the first five books of Moses. The fat Sadducees believed, as the current Pope does, that you don't exist after death. You are annihilated. You are gone forever. This, of course, leads to beer commercial theology, where you only go around once in life, so you grab for all the gusto you can, because there is no judgment. There is no hell. There are no consequences of sin. You just try and get as much as you can out of this life, And then you die and you're gone. Believing in soul annihilation is a favorite doctrine of wicked men and Satan for helps them sin with an easy conscience. They don't have to fear facing judgment and hell. I mean, those who don't love God are kind of comforted by the thought of annihilation because they could rebel against God all their life and then die and be done with God. If every time someone committed a crime, an ice pick was poked through their hand, people would commit far fewer crimes. And in the same way, if people truly believe their Bibles and believe that hell existed and judgment was certain, the ice pick of conscience would hinder them from sinning against God. But because so many people have denied the scriptures, they're often able to sin without any problem their their conscience is seared there there's not even a belief of hell and judgment that's why when you're witnessing to people today and you say you know are you saved you need to add from hell or from the wrath of god or from you know suffering day and night forever ever in the lake of fire because when you say saved they think from what 
They don't even know what that means because they don't even know there's a danger because they don't even know what the Bible says. Most professing Christians don't know this. And it had always been one of Satan's favorite lies to deny that there is a spirit world. It's kind of interesting, right? Satan tries to get people to believe he doesn't exist. He doesn't operate. He's not working in the world. There is no hell. There is no heaven. There is no judgment to come. People then let down their guard and he leads them hoodwinked to hell. Look at verse 28. It says, and they questioned him saying, teacher, Moses wrote before us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, and Numbers 27, verses 6 through 11, and what is called leveret marriage. The, the concept is, is that if a, a woman was married to a man who had a brother, that brother had to be unmarried, but if she was married to a man and that her husband died and they hadn't had children yet, the brother then was obliged to marry her. The first child then, male child, would then be given the inheritance of her her previous husband, the man's brother, so that the inheritance would not die out in his family line. And that's what they're talking about here. And so they give this kind of hyperbolic case. I mean, this is an extreme case. Guys like to do this. Yeah, what would happen? The boys were just doing that. What do you think? Would we in a lion or gorilla? How about a tiger or a bear? You know, guys like to get extreme. So you can see this is guy reasoning here. Now there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died childless and the second and the third. Uh, and, and finally all seven had married her, died, even no children. Finally, the woman also died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife will she be for all seven had her? And they're just kind of thinking, guy, let's, let's try this one out here. Let's try the seven wife one on him. I mean, not that it would be any really different than two wives, right? Or two husbands. I mean, if it was just one, one wife who married two guys and one brother, I mean, it would be the same as three or four or five, but they made it seven. Because, I mean, if, let's just blow it out. And see, if you know the Bible, this is not a hard question. If you know the Bible, this is like a no-duh. This is a no-brainer. But if you reject the word of God as a premise and then try to arrive at the correct answer, you're in trouble. You're like those who deny that God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour periods. And, and then having rejected the right answer, you're trying to come up with the right wrong answer. Believe me, you're going to look a long time. You can look forever for the right, wrong answer. You'll never find it. And that's what we see going on. What they say is true 50 years ago has changed. What they say was true 40 years ago and 30 years ago and 20 years ago and 10 years ago and 5 years ago. They keep changing and changing and changing because they're trying to find the truth in the pool of wrong answers having rejected the truth. The Sadducees rejected the bulk of the Old Testament, and that is why they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so now they're trying to find the right, wrong answer. You see, the Bible often reveals doctrines little by little. 
You know, the exception of that might be the doctrine of creation, which is pretty full-blown at the beginning of Genesis. But the rest of the doctrines are, are added a little by little. So you can kind of see like a wedge shape, a taper. As you move towards the New Testament, more and more information is given. That's called revelation is progressive. It expands as God gives more revelation. And so if you go to the first five books of the Old Testament and you chop it off there, there's not much on the resurrection because pretty much the resurrection started being taught later and developed fully in the New Testament. But let's just look at some of the key verses. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Job 19, Job chapter 19, we'll just look at a few texts and I'll just show you how uh, these are kind of like the best verses in the Old Testament concerning life after death and the resurrection. Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom I eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job proclaims life after death in seeing the Lord with his own eyes after death. Now, granted, bodily rising from the dead isn't specifically mentioned, but it's kind of alluded to in that he says, after my flesh is destroyed, there's going to be a time that with my own eyes, which is part of his flesh, I'm going to be able to see God. You say, well, how does that work? The resurrection. But it's not very clear. And it's not one of the five books of Moses. If you turn over to Psalm chapter 16, there's another text there. That alludes to life after death. Psalm 16 verse 10. We know that David here is giving a prophecy about the Messiah. And he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Speaking of the Messiah, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand. There are pleasures forever. So David clearly pictures the Messiah, though he wrote this about himself. He's also including here the Holy One who would not undergo decay, which implies that the Holy One would die but that his body would not decay. The resurrection, though, body resurrection, isn't specifically mentioned. Turn to Psalm 49, Psalm chapter 49. Here's another text which alludes to life after death. Psalm 49, verse 15 where we read, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So here, you know, the the psalmist is saying, hey, I, I'm going to be redeemed from the power of the grave. But bodily resurrection isn't specifically mentioned. It's just being redeemed in general. 
you could turn over to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26. And there's another text there which seems really good, but it's not as good as we wish it was. If you ignore the context, it's really good. Um, But we don't do that here. Isaiah 26 verse 19, Isaiah declares, he's already declared in verse 14 that the wicked will not rise again. That is, there will be no resurrection to life um, for the wicked. He goes on to speak of the righteous in verse 19 saying, your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you will lie in the dust You who lie in the dust will awake and shout for joy for your dew is as the dew of the dawn and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And you think, oh man, that is a good one. And it is. But it's speaking of the spiritual resurrection of Israel that has fallen into apostasy. And so the resurrection terms are used to picture their being resurrected. It's really talking about the nation as a whole being brought to life, spiritual life again from their spiritually dead state. We see the same thing, remember, in uh, Ezekiel 37 in the, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Remember, he's looking and he sees all those bones and all of a sudden they start rattling and clinking together. I think they had that in an old movie called Jason and the Argonauts, didn't they? And uh, anyways, they get all flesh, gets all put on them and, and pretty soon they're reassembled. And And so resurrection terminology is used to picture them going from a spiritually dead state to a spiritually live state. So those two texts don't work either. But there is a really good text, Daniel 12. Daniel chapter 12, which just happens to be one of the books the Jews don't like to read the most. It's so explicit here that... It's better not to read this book if you don't want to face up with reality. But in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Daniel has just said that everyone whose name is written in the book of life will be rescued. And then he says this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the most explicit text on the bodily resurrection found in the Old Testament. One text. But of course the Sadducees rejected this as the word of God and authoritative. And you could also look at other texts which talk about resurrection, uh, just res- not the same kind that Jesus had, those who are dead, who are raised, only to die again. Now, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection that he was resurrected, given a glorified body, and will never die again. We have in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, Elijah raises the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. In 2 Kings 4, 32 through 20, uh, or I think it's 12 through 27, Elijah raises the Shunammite son from the dead. In 2 Kings 13, uh, a dead man is cast into Elisha's grave. And when the, the body hits the grave, he pops awake again. 
He's resurrected. So all these were physical, bodily resurrections to die again, but they were resurrections nonetheless, but they aren't in the law of Moses. We could also refer to the example of, uh, or the, the episode in the uh, first Samuel 28 and the witch of Endor. If you remember that, when Saul, um, God has kind of shut down all communication with him. So he goes to see a witch and God then resurrects Samuel's spirit from the dead to rebuke him and pronounce doom upon him. Samuel's spirit was not annihilated. It was still existing. But of course, the Sadducees, having rejected a good chunk of God's word, uh, were confused. And this is what always happens. When you reject the Bible, when you reject part of God's revelation, or say the Bible has errors, only part of it's true, then it leads to theological confusion and sinful behavior. The Bible has been attacked by Satan and those deceived by him ever since it was written. Liberal theologians and Christians and atheists, they have attacked the Bible from every angle. And see, if you, Satan knows if you destroy the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible, there's nothing left. I mean, I talk to people sometimes and say, well, you know, I don't believe in creation. It's like, yeah, what else don't you believe? I mean, the first three chapters of Genesis, you're going to pitch those and the hundreds of references to creation. So we're going to pitch those. So, I don't know, about 10% of the Bible or something. You know, we're going to throw that away. And what else? And see, a lot of times they think, well, that's, it's, you know, it's not a big deal, is it? Well, it's just that the prophets said God created, so I guess they're lying, right? And then you're going to trust the rest of what they said since they're lying to you about creation? Jesus spoke of creation and Adam and Eve. And so if he's not telling the truth, then he lied. He's not sinless. He can't save you. You're still dead in your sin. The apostle said the same thing. And so the whole system crumbles. The whole Bible. I mean, go home and adopt your beer theology. Because you're just going to try and get as much as you can in this life. And then you're just going to die. And perish in hell. Or you can deny that. And you're still going to perish in hell. And Satan knows this. And that's why in every generation. He raises up a different brand of Sadducees. Like the current Pope. Or Pharisees who add tons of extra biblical things to the Bible. Just like the Roman Catholic system. Like many other systems. Extra biblical information Man-made traditions, thoughts, ideas, opinions have no authority. And this is why Jesus twice said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 6 and verse 11, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because one's adding too much man-made religion. They're adding all this oral tradition and saying it's authoritative. The other one's denying two-thirds of the word of God. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, listen, I don't, I don't, I don't believe all the Bible is true. You know, I don't believe, you know, in creation. I don't believe wives should have to submit to their husbands. I don't believe that there's going to be a resurrection. I don't believe there's a hell or whatever. You better think again, because the whole system rises or falls on the veracity 
of the entire scriptures. You are calling the prophets and Jesus and the apostles liars. And believe me, if Jesus is a liar, we're all in huge trouble. So don't be a Sadducee and deny part of the Bible. It leads to damnation. Secondly, after death will be, things will be different. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither are marry nor are given in marriage. And he just says, you know, marriage is instituted by God. And we see marriage in Genesis 2.24. It is that relationship between a husband and wife where there's one man, one woman publicly recognized, committed to each other until death, until death. And then once death happens, that marriage bond is to be dissolved. Paul talks about this, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 7, verse 2, For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. There's no marriage except in this life between one man and one woman. After death, marriage is dissolved. Look at verse 36, For they cannot even die anymore, Jesus says. I mean, when you get to heaven... Uh, when you die, you can't die anymore. Your spirits live forever. And after the resurrection, you'll have a glorified body that will live forever. And you can't even die anymore. You're forever. You're immortal. As we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15. You will never die again. Your body will look like flesh after the resurrection. You'll look like you have a body of flesh and blood, but it'll be different. It'll be eternal. It'll never be sick. It'll never grow tired. You'll be able to move about freely without exertion. Travel from place to place without any effort. I wish I could tell you more, but the Bible doesn't give us any details. It's very sketchy. We just have like the little episode of Jesus showing up into the room and eating and disappearing through the wall. And then you think, so what do we can learn from that? Well, you can appear in a room, eat some fish, and disappear. That's all I know. There it is. There's your whole theology. Look at the middle of verse 36. Because they are like angels. This tells us a little bit more. Notice he doesn't say that that we become angels. And notice also he's going after the Sadducees' denial of angels. I mean, you know, since we're at it and you guys are messed up in the resurrection and messed up with angels and messed up with life after death, let me just like use the broadsword and go after every one of your errors. And that's what he does. I mean, what are angels like? They are spirit beings who look like men. When they appear in the Old Testament, they look like people. Sometimes uh, they're referred to as men. The Bible says we can even entertain angels unaware. They're always masculine, never feminine. It eeks me, you know, you try and get a nice angel for a top of a Christmas tree. (laughs) You know, I've felt sometimes like getting one of those girl angels and putting a G.I. Joe in there. You know, you got this this nativity scene and there's an angel, you know, hovering over the roof and it's a woman. It's like, man, you want to get a little, you know, tough action figure guy in there and put some sort of masculine robe on him and give him a sword. 
The Bible speaks of cherubim and seraphim as having wings, but it never calls them angels. It refers to them sometimes by their name, cherubim or seraphim, and other times as living creatures. They may be angels, but they're never called that in the Bible, so we aren't quite sure. But pretty much all the rest of them look like people. I mean, granted, sometimes they're glowing rather brightly, but they look like people. And look at the angels, uh, or look at the text where it says they're, they're like the angels in that what? They never die. Angels live forever. And that is the comparison he's making. They never die. They're like the angels. And look at the end of verse 36. And are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The Bible speaks of two resurrections. The first resurrection is a resurrection to life. And it happens in several stages. It happens partly at the rapture, at the second coming. And then the next phase is uncertain whether people who die during the thousand year reign of Christ are kind of resurrected little by little or whether they're resurrected at the great white throne when most of the unbelievers are resurrected. The Bible isn't clear about that. But what is clear is that the first resurrection has various stages to it. And it is a resurrection to life where people receive glorified bodies like Jesus's at his resurrection and live in those perfect bodies fit for eternity forever. That never wear out, never need Advil, never get a pulled muscle and your hair doesn't fall out. If you die before the first resurrection, you will have even more to look forward to because it won't just be I'm dying and now I'm a spirit kind of like the angels in the presence of Christ. I'm this, I still have a form. I'm a spirit being, but that's not all there is. Though that would be great because you wouldn't be tired. You could still move around. You still, you know, you see these glimpses like in the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Elijah and Moses? You, you see pictures, little glimpses are mentioned of spirits now with God or Christ in heaven. But there is no, there is, they don't have a body like ours. They don't have their glorified body yet. I mean, just being a spirit would be great. But there's some sort of advantage to having your body back. I don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't say, but it's an advantage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we all, not all of us are going to die when this happens, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will be changed. So there will be people alive and people dead, and all of a sudden, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which is really fast, all of a sudden, you're changed. You're now immortal. Instantaneously, you are an immortal person. That is so cool. I mean, doesn't that sound good to you? That sounds good to me. Especially after working hard in the yard, it really sounds good. Paul says to the discouraged Thessalonians who were confused by false teachers and said, Oh, the day of the Lord's already come. The resurrection's already come. What are you guys doing? I mean, you missed it. And they're like, did we miss it? And he said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain 
until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That is so great. So at the rapture, there is an instantaneous translation of people who are alive, but all those who have already died in Christ, those are transformed. They're Their spirits are with Christ already and their bodies which have returned to the dust of the earth are reassembled. They are transformed. They are fit for eternity and united with their spirits in an instantaneous moment. And there's everybody in heaven all of a sudden, wham, they've got their glorified body now. And we who are on earth all of a sudden, wham, are with them. Oh, everybody's standing around going, whoa. Of course, the people who have been up there, they're saying, whoa, because now they have their body. And we're saying, whoa, at everything. (laughs) Because we just got there and everything's new. And so there will be differences, believe me, after the resurrection, after you die. Third, the only only the worthy will attain to the resurrection of life. Look at verse 35 again and notice Jesus speaks of those who are considered worthy. First of all, he says, to attain to that age. Notice not everybody is going to be part of the first resurrection. You have to be one of the worthy ones. Worthy ones. To attain to that age. The age referring to is Christ's everlasting kingdom. Heaven, his thousand year reign, followed by the uh, new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. The age that never ends, eternal life with Jesus and the presence of his angels and the saints of all the ages. Look at the middle of verse 35. Believers will also attain to the resurrection from the dead. You need to consider this. There are spirits right now, right now, In heaven, the souls of men and women who have believed in God ever since Adam and Eve, they are with Christ now in heaven, conscious, talking spirits who are waiting for a glorified body. But all this begs to ask the question, doesn't it? How does one become worthy to attain to the age to come and the resurrection? And I think you could probably guess It's by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how you are considered worthy. It's not by doing a bunch of good works. It's not being by being a philanthropist, by coming to church a certain number of times, by learning so much Bible doctrine. It's about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. As John said, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. If you believe in him alone for salvation, you will be saved. Or as he says in John 3.16, whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or as Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is how a person gets saved. That is how they get to the place where they are worthy. Not because they are worthy, but because they receive Christ who is worthy. He is the worthy lamb. 
As Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his wicked thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord and to our God. And he will find compassion and our God will humbly, will gladly pardon him. If he is a humble, repentant sinner, God will pardon him, forgive him of all of his sins. And then he will become one of the worthy ones because of what God has done for him. He has just received that free gift. Fourth and finally, the law of Moses teaches the resurrection. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees who profess to only believe in the law of Moses. And, you know, Jesus is just not one to get into an argument with about the scriptures. He wins. It's almost like he wrote the book. He knows so much about the Bible. Look at verse 37, but that the dead are not raised. Even Moses showed because he knows that they are, they came to, we believe in the writings of Moses only. So then he goes there. Okay, I'll use your own book. Um, If you wanted to go there, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead. But of the living, for all live to him. Jesus quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph as presently living. And when he says he is, that is a present active verb. He is right now the God of these living men. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses appeared having a conversation. When Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was conscious in hell. Lazarus was conscious in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom talked to the rich man. Conscious beings after death. Believers live to God after dying physically like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are right now. And all the other believers who have ever lived, all the unbelievers are suffering. They're conscious too, but they're not experiencing life. They're experiencing the beginning of everlasting death. Look at verse 39. Some of the scribes and answers said, teacher, you have spoken well. Notice who says this. The scribes, not the Sadducees, because they're glad that Jesus sided with them. They're kind of like, yeah, well, you got that one, Ryan. (laughs) Sadducees, did you hear that? Did you hear what he just said? That's right, teacher. That's good. That's good. So they're willing to side with Jesus when when he throws a theological punch at the Sadducees. But then the Sadducees don't have any courage to ask him any more questions. And so you need to know that even the law of Moses teaches the resurrection. The rest of the Old Testament alludes many places to life after death. There's a clear text on the resurrection in Daniel. And then in the New Testament, there's more and more teaching until, you know, we get to 1 Corinthians 15 and there is, it's blown out there in full blown development. Now, I just thought to myself, how could I help you understand that there is going to be life forever and what that's going to be like. And, and uh, you know, words fail me. I was tired. So I'm going to let John Bunyan tell us. This is at the end of Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and Hopeful have traveled the Pilgrim's Way, the straight and narrow to the celestial city. They have fled from the city of destruction. And as they're going along, they finally reach 
the river of death. And the river of death is that river that you have to cross. They've got their armor that was given to them, but it's all beat up and banged up and thoroughly used. And they need to wade across that river. And they do. Barely, Bunyan begins to get scared and starts sinking, but hopeful reminds him of God's truth and he finds sure footing and they make it to the other side and their armor falls off and floats back and when it gets to the other side, it's brand new and some shining ones pick it up to take it back to the palace will be given to other pilgrims. And then Bunyan writes, now upon the bank of the river on the other side, they saw the two shining men again who were there waiting for them. When they came out of the river, they saluted them saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those that shall be the heirs of salvation. Thus they went along towards the gate. Now you must note that the city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms. They had likewise left their mortal garments behind them in the river, for though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed. Though the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds, they therefore went up through the region of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. The talk that they had with the shining ones was about the glory of that place who told them that the beauty and glory of it was inexpressible. There, said they, is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels and spirits of the just men made perfect. You are going now, said they, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. And when you come there, you shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall not see again such things as you saw when you were in the lower region upon the earth with sorrow, sickness, affliction, and death, for the former things are passed away. You are going now to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob and to the prophets and the men of God that have taken away from the evil to come and are now resting upon their beds, each one walking in his righteousness. The men then asked, well, what must we do in that place? To whom it was answered, you must there receive the comfort of all your toil and have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king along the way. In that place, you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the perpetual sight and vision of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. 
There also you shall serve him continually with praise and shouting and thanksgiving whom you desired to serve in the world, though with much difficulty because of the infirmity of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing and your ears with hearing the pleasant voice of the mighty one. There you shall enjoy your friends again that are gone here before you. And there you shall with joy receive even everyone that follows into that holy place after you. There you shall be clothed with the glory and majesty and equipped to ride out with the king of glory when he shall come with the sound of a trumpet in the clouds as upon the wings of the wind you shall come with him when he shall sit upon the throne of judgment you shall sit with him yea and when he passes sentence upon the workers of iniquity let them be angels or men you shall have a voice in that judgment because they were his and your enemies Also, when he shall again return to the city, you shall go to with the sound of a trumpet to be ever with him. Now, while they were thus drawing towards the gate, behold, a company of heavenly hosts came out to meet them, to whom it was said by the other two shining ones, these are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and they have left all for his holy name. And he has sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey that they may go in and look at their redemption in the face with joy and then the heavenly hosts gave a great shout saying blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the lamb and there came out also at this time to meet them several of the king's trumpeters clothed with white and shining raiment who with melodious noises and loud made even the heavens echo with their sound These trumpeters saluted Christian with his fellow and 10,000 welcomes of the world. And this they did with shouting and the sound of trumpet. This done, they encompassed them around on every side and went before and some behind and some of the right and some of the left, as it were, to guard them through the upper regions, continually sounding as they went the melodious noise and notes on high so that every sight was to them that, cl- that could behold it as if heaven itself was come down to meet them. Thus, therefore, they walked on together. And as they walked among the trumpeters, even the joyful sound would mi- be mixing and music in their ears and looks and gestures and still signify to Christian and his brother how welcome they were into their company and with gladness they came to meet them and now these two men as it were in heaven before they came to it were being swallowed up with the sight of angels and with the hearing of their melodious notes here also they had the city itself in view and they thought they heard all the bells therein to ring welcoming them to come But above all, the warm and joyful thoughts that they had about their own dwelling there with such company that forever and ever, oh, by what tongue or pen can their joyous, glorious expressions utter? Thus they came to the gate. Now when they were come to the gate, there was written over it in letters of gold, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And I saw in my dream that the shining men bid them call at the gate, which they did. And some from above looked over the gate, Enoch, Moses, and Elijah, and others, to whom it was said, these pilgrims are come from the city of destruction for the love that they bear to the king of this place. Then the pilgrims gave unto them each man his certificate, which they had received at the beginning 
These, therefore, were carried into the king, who, when they had read them, said, Where are the men? To whom it was answered, They are standing outside the gate. And the king then commanded to open the gate, that the righteous nation, said he, that keeps my truth may enter in. Now, as I saw in my dream that these two men went into the gate, and lo, as they entered, they were transfigured. And they had raiment put on them that shone like gold. There were also some that met with them with harps and crowns and gave to them the harps to praise God with and crowns as tokens of honor. And then I heard in the dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy and that it was said unto them, Enter into the joy of the Lord. I also heard the men themselves and they sang in a loud voice saying, Blessed and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Now, just as the gates were opened to let the men in, I looked in after them and behold, the city shone like the sun. The streets were paved with gold and in them walked many men with crowns on their heads and palms in their hands and golden harps to sing praises with. And there also among them, There were those with wings and they answered to one another without intermission saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And after that, they shut up the gates, which when I had seen it, I wished myself among them. Now, of course, Bunyan doesn't do it justice. He's just taken a little bit of verses and tried to string them together. It's going to be better than that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have the privilege of looking into your word and the hope of the resurrection. May we not let godless men and Satan and demons steal from us the hope of eternal life. May we not deny that there will be life after death for all eternity and a resurrection of our bodies from the dead because we have placed our faith in Christ. And Father, may all of this Motivate us to live for you, to praise you, to sing to your name, to tell others of Christ so that many might place their faith in Jesus and escape eternal death, that you might receive more to yourself to give you praise for all eternity. We ache to be with you and we wish ourselves to be among those now in glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.